coronavirus is upending our lives and reshaping society. In this podcast, The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, we're hard at work producing new episodes that speak to the current challenges. But we also thought that this was a moment to go back through our archive of more than 100 conversations and bring you some of our favourites. Coronavirus threatens our mental well-being as well as our physical health. The challenge is to use this moment to the fullest, to think more deeply about where our lives are going and how we can live with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. Today we bring you a conversation with singer Tim Minchin on free will, anger, success and failure. My interest is where religion meets bigotry, because religion meets bigotry everywhere. Religion is, in the vast majority, socially regressive. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. As a science-loving rationalist, I've always loved Tim Minchin's songs and everything from dogma to alternative medicine. He's even been kind enough to let me quote snippets of them in two of my books. But I remember the moment when I thought, this guy's a genius. It was midway through the school song in Matilda, when they start turning lettered blocks over, and you realise the song doesn't just work lyrically and musically, but also visually, because every line corresponds to the next letter of the alphabet. Now 43 years old, Tim grew up in Perth, before moving to Melbourne, London and Los Angeles. Then he had a really bad experience with the project, and now he's home. I think I speak for many Australians in saying, we're sorry that Larrikins didn't work out, but delighted to have Tim back here. He's presently doing a tour, the aptly named Back Tour, which is currently showing in Canberra. Tim, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. You seem to have grown up in a fairly musical family. Your uh, uncle Jim was a bluegrass musician. You talk about family singing around the piano. Uh, You played with your brother Dan in bands. Did you always expect you'd go into entertainment? Uh, No. I think I really didn't. Um, I think maybe because the only professional musician in the family was my uncle Jim and he was sort of the black sheep who was quite wayward in his time and I grew up in a much less wayward corner of the family the probably the most of the fishes that that family our family was the most sort of um, conservative I guess because my mum married a surgeon and you know um, we're pretty straight uh, and I don't I don't know when I thought that it was realistic that I could be an artist for a living, but it was late. It was after I was already an artist. You know, it took me a long time to give myself permission, you know. Like, literally, I I didn't really think it was possible. 
I think I thought people, there were special people and then there were normal people and I thought I was in the latter. But you played a lot of piano and you wrote a lot of poems as a kid. Mm-hmm. When, did, when did you start to put those two together? Uh, I wrote, I think I wrote my first song at sort of 11 and my brother and I wrote uh, together a lot. He, he would write the music and I'd write the lyrics in our later teens. Mm. And in our early bands it was really that. Um, me being the lyricist, he being the musician and then I just sort of... Uh, by the end of the time that Dan and I were playing in bands together, he was just playing for me, but joyously without any, you know, he was like, oh, great, your songs are better, let's play them, you know, or at least better, whatever that means. I, I was more driven to do it. And, uh, and yeah, I, I, when I left Perth, I sort of stopped playing with my brother and it was quite a full-on thing and I never really found another, you know, um, wingman. Although the guitarist I work with now is like the most amazing guy ever, so uh, you'll you'll see. But um, yeah, yeah. I don't. I think I think we all just loved music, but we we thought it was a hobby. Hmm. Who do you think of your early, early musical influences, Bang? Well, they're just it's just Dan. You know, Dan told me what to play, what to listen to. You know, so I guess he was feeding me hoodoo gurus and. Crowded House and In Excess and The Cure and then later when I started, my friends started listening to more music, I was never the one going out to pursue it. I've never listened mm. much. I've, I've always found it quite hard um, having music on. Uh, it's always done my head in a bit. So I was dragged to things by my friends. So I got into Pearl Jam, but mostly because my mates did and all that Seattle stuff and eventually in Nirvana and the Pixies and stuff. And and then I think, like most of us, my sense of what my music was mm. kind of ended at the end of the 90s. Now it's all just retrospective. Um, but more influential than any of that stuff was, um, on one side, the kind of musical theatre-y stuff that we was on the pianola rolls and that my grand took me to because we went to the theatre a bit. And on the other, just Beatles and Stones and the Kinks, probably the Kinks and Queen even more. And you, I think of your style as being most similar to uh, Tom Lehrer, who was foisted upon me by parents who'd lived mm-hmm. in the US in the 1960s. But uh, that sort of tradition of uh, piano playing uh, uh, musical com- comedy didn't uh, didn't dive in at you at that early age? No, I'd, I hadn't. Uh, people used to say, you're like Tom Lehrer. And I go, who? When I first started being silly, I didn't even know who he was. I was vaguely aware of the um, elements. Um, but... Uh, yeah, it's, I'm not influenced by comedians nor by pianists mm. particularly. I didn't listen to a lot of Elton or Billy Joel or anything. I, um, songwriting-wise, you know, Ray Davies and Lennon McCartney and, you know, all those and Freddie Mercury were my influences and actually in terms of my love of language and stuff, it partly probably comes from Gilbert and Sullivan and... Right. Um, and you know, I didn't really know who Sondheim was until much later as well. It wasn't hugely sophisticated. Uh, my parents didn't have a big record collection at all. Um, but I did. My granddad gave me a poem, a book of Ogden Nash poems, and I love Spike Milligan. And but it's playfulness. It's all those bands actually, although they're all '60s bands. They're all writing. I mean, the Kinks, half their stuff was basically satire, mm. you know, dedicated mm. follower of fashion. And I want to be like David Watts or whatever that song is. And it's just gags. 
And the Beatles often their lyrics were playful and sarcastic and and certainly Queen. Um so I think that might be why my style is a little unusual is because I play piano. My style of piano is very much like um I'm mimicking drums and guitar. Mm. So I'm hitting I'm constantly playing left hand like a kick drum, right hand like a snare, and chords like a guitar. So I go, and that's because I didn't really grow up listening to pianists until I found the Whitlams and Ben Folds in the 90s and went, oh, you can write pop from yes. behind a piano. You can rock. Um, for some reason, I it was them, not not Elton and Billy. And is it true you'd learn to read music pretty late? Still, I can't read music. <laughs> I, 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 That's I, sort I, of astonishing to me. I did up to grade three piano, so I guess when I was 12 I could read a little bit. Yeah. But then I just let it go because when I quit piano at end of grade three, piano, uh, A-M-E-B, I um, kind of didn't play for a year, I don't think, and then my brother sort of hassled me into... Uh, my my piano teacher when I said I was going to quit she she never she now she's still around she's in her 70s 80s actually she and my mum sees her and she's always sort of mortified that she had a student who would go on to be a, a, a composer I guess but didn't notice that I had any particular propensity but she did for some reason on my last lesson go okay just before you go and she just showed me how to harmonize a c major scale she just went you know the c major scale then if you extend the harmony of that at c major d minor e minor f major g dominant a minor b minor flat five c you know and you just do that to all the notes on the piano and you know how to play chords and good luck and that was gold that combined with my brother being a guitarist so therefore playing chord based and I can play guitar a bit too. So I was I just sort of um imported chord theory. Um and then eventually I went to um the conservatorium in WA to do a contemporary music course which was like a sort of how to be a session muso sort of course. Um and I did that because I wanted to learn to read music because by then I was writing music for theater and I thought I'm going to hit a ceiling here and no one's going to employ me if I can't do the dots. And I, I went to do this course, but I was too far gone. It's very hard to go back. And so now I, I wouldn't, I could not play a simple melody in the right hand off sheet music. And I, <laughs> there's no need, I would never come across one. Yeah. And why would I ever see one? I can write a, a Broadway musical on Logic Audio Pro using MIDI instruments, sing in all the harmonies, play in the flutes, Sometimes I play outside their range because I don't really know how those instruments work. I look up, well, what's the range of a flute? And then I hand it to Chris Nightingale or Ian Grandage or Jules Buckley or any of these amazing orchestrators and go, make that good. Turn it into dots. It's amazing. <laughs> I'm, and it's about specialisation, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm not a music producer. I don't have a lot of gear. I don't have much. I can't. I'm no good with microphones or preamps or EQs or compression. I, I actually made a conscious decision in my early 20s that I wasn't going to get caught up in gear mm. and process. There's other people who specialise in that. It was a good choice. Well, 
come back to comparative advantage later on. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, I, I'm curious on your sort of meld of uh, left and right brain. Uh, somebody whose dad's a surgeon. I mean, one of the things I love about your uh, your music is the, uh, the the use of statistics and science mm-hmm. in it. Um, but you uh, you chose to study arts. Uh, why why was that? Um, I mean, putting aside the myth of the left and right brain, but that metaphorically, I am I am right brain is it the right that's arty i always go left i think it is the right that that ostensibly was the arty side that's it? that's the metaphor yes. anyway yes. um i mean i you know i didn't when i got my te our, our exams were entrance tertiary entrance exams were called tee in the 90s and when i got the results back by the time i got to the end of the year 12 of year 12 i was always fine i kind of got away with maths and chemistry and i was quite interested in economics but it's only because i had a good teacher i think but really all like I remember getting my TE results and looking at my English mark and going, yes. And mum going, what did you get in your TE? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I didn't check. I don't, I didn't really care because I knew I just wanted mm. to go and do English basically. Um, and because I always got like B's, B pluses in English and English literature at school. And although I never thought I was particularly bright or academic at school, at school, I always thought the guys getting A's in English, I thought they're just regurgitating. This is bullshit. And so when TE, because it's marked by tertiary, my my result was way higher than all those guys who got A's. And I was so felt so vindicated that having slightly more original ideas was, I went, oh, yes, when I leave school, they're going to value this. That was my first indication that I, I was going to be able to be valued for being a bit more lateral. Hmm. And you studied some uh, philosophy at university? Yeah, a little bit of philosophy, enough to absolutely pique my interest. I sort of studied a bit of psych, a bit of philosophy, and I, I sort of, and through that got interested in, really in belief and logic and sort of cognition and, but belief really. Yeah. And somewhere in my 20s, and it sort of lay dormant. I, I've done this a lot in my life, same with learning the dominant 13 shape at, at uni I, I sort of went oh, okay that's a jazz chord and then later six years later or whatever it was 10 years later I sit down and write Matilda and it's just all through it you know it's just sat there on the shelf waiting for me to catch up with the knowledge sort of yeah. thing and I did that with my love of science and it just sat there dormant until I somewhere in my 20s I think the first book I read was Francis Ween's How Mumbo Jumbo conquered the world and then on and found James Randi and all that kind of slightly odd but interesting sceptical movement in the United States and and then really got into reading about religion and then it and then suddenly you find yourself back at philosophy 100 learning all the informal logical fallacies and going oh this is amazing tools yes and all the way to now where really my macro obsession is this term that Steve Novella, I think, coined, which is um, neuropsychological humility, is how important it is to understand that both your neurology and your psychology construct stuff and how susceptible we are to being fooled and to our biases and stuff. And I just, I look at the world through that lens now and I'm obsessed with trying to get I, I'm starting to try and figure out how I can have an influence on people like you, although I don't think I need to influence you because I think we think the same stuff, 
to make sure critical thinking is taught from age 10. Yes. I'd rather my kids understood confirmation bias than that Captain Cook turned up in 1788. That's on Wikipedia. That's a, we, we've just gone down a whole path, sorry. No, 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 it's great. Yeah, and yeah. I, will, I will circle back to, yeah. to some of that. I want to keep the chronological thread going, though, yes. because you, you spent a lot of your 20s not being famous, uh, playing uh, pubs in Frio, you were, uh, you were supporting Eddie Perfect. Um, do you feel as though, in some sense, that was your 10,000 hours? bit like the Beatles uh, time in Germany, Uh, you know, that that apprenticeship of just being able to practice and make mistakes. How how important do you think that that was in retrospect? It's completely vital. I mean, I've got a song that I never quite finished called Spend Your Twenties Poor. Um, And I've sort of uh, hinted at this in the graduation speech I did and stuff, this idea Mm. of not rushing. But what's so important for me is the geography that being in Perth where you could make something great and everyone go that was great and that's the end and then you have to go on and make something else great and in the meantime you have to make coffees Mm. whereas if you live in London or Melbourne everyone's but much more Melbourne or New York if you do something great everyone's like okay right so you should go do this and go do this and do this. And so you in London would be like, okay, so you go make a radio comedy with the BBC and, that, and then maybe that'll be telly and then you'll end up touring and we'll do a DVD deal with you. And, and often, and I think it happens in Australia as well, in the Eastern States at least, people find talent and, go, and with good intentions go, well, let's tap it, let's, let's promote that. And then the person gets a tv show and it's not great because they haven't done their ten thousand hours Mm. and they sort of blew their chance a bit because you don't really get another go at a sitcom if that's your thing your first sitcom doesn't work they don't go let's commission a different sitcom for the same person so i got ignored and by the time i turned up in edinburgh in 2005 it looked like i just popped out of the ether, like this weird freak, form, fully formed, pseudo-cabaret, ranty, eyeliner swearing pianist, when actually that's the, it was such a long journey to try and go, well, what do I do? You know, having been rejected by all the record labels and rejected by all the agents and wanting to be an actor, but, you know, faces like this don't get on Australian telly and... and um, wanting to be a muso but songs like that don't really get record deals and eventually I went I'm just going to put it all on stage and show these fuckers that I've got some skills and that changed my life but it took me till I was 28 to even think that anyone would want to see it and then things changed pretty quickly after uh, after Edinburgh um, mm. how do you avoid um, becoming a pompous git uh, when fame strikes you that suddenly well, I think if you asked Andrew Bolt, I did. Um, but uh, um, working on the hypothesis that I'm not a pompous git, I think the important things are not getting known too early before you develop. You get trapped. You get stuck in the age you... It's a bit like they say heroin addiction and fame. Uh, this is my sort of pet theory that... Addiction and fame are similar. They um, 
they freeze you in a certain era, the era at which it happened. And because you're not having normal developmental experiences after that happens, you're being putting drug addiction aside. But when it comes to fame, especially in America, the industry does everything it can to infantilize you so that everyone can make money out of you. Because if you're functional and self-reliant, then you don't need a manager and a PA and an assistant to the manager and you don't need a driver. And, and so you get de-skilled. Even having found some success in, at 30 and really only significant, significant kind of life-changing success, I guess, after Matilda, um, I, even, so, even though I was in my 30s, I've, been, I've had to be constantly vigilant. And you ask the people who work with me, I, I, I'm like, I never, I've never raised my voice at anyone in my life. I, don't, I'm, I treat everyone the same, I think, pretty much. But the only thing that ever irritates me is when someone like, tries to open the door for me or... Uh, like I just the the absurd in America and on film set sort of servitude. I'm just like, just stop doing, stop doing that. And then they go, whisper goes around. Mr. Minchin doesn't like it when you open the door. And so then suddenly you're you're a despot, you know. And it's like, oh, this is hopeless. Can we just start again? Can we just like let me get you a coffee? And then I understand your job is to get me coffee, but just can I get you one first? Like, is that? Yeah. And I'm really vigilant about it. Um, I've definitely come into a place where I feel I can speak with some authority that is probably unearned. But I think that comes with age anyway. And when your job is to speak, I've become more confident. I've become more uh, bitter about the places I don't succeed. Like, if... Things that uh, which we'll get to if we're going chronologically, like the the things that haven't worked out for me, uh, infuriate me. Like how dare you stop me getting my way? That stuff I've become a bit like that, um, which is like an entitled thing that just comes with like, hold on, I've worked really hard, and when I did it there, there, and there, it worked, hmm. and then then you come along, and now you know, like I get furious. But I don't think, um, and I think if Sarah was here, she would say I've got more serious kind of thing. But I think that comes with age too. You just carry the weight of the of your kind of of the world a bit more. You sort of feel a bit sadder about stuff. But other than that, I think I'm think I've done all right at keeping normal. Yeah, I mean, I feel as though as as your um, uh, power in the world increases there comes an increasing obligation to um, be tough with the powerful and gentle with the powerless around you yeah. uh, and people who are complete bastards to those who are driving the ta- driving the taxi or serving, yeah. uh, serving the coffee yeah. using using their, their position uh, always seems to me a great litmus test of, uh, of, yeah. of a broken character yeah well um, yeah and you've heard me say that in, I think that's true, and it strikes me as odd that that surely everyone feels that way. Surely, as you get powerful, you think, "Ah, oh, well, the right thing to do here is to only shout up, don't shout down." Like, but some people just get worse and worse and worse. 
especially in Hollywood, they're just like yelling on the phone at people and assistants. And you just go, you must feel awful about yourself when you hang up that phone. You must. Hmm. Unless you actually have a psychological, you know, personality disorder of some sort. You must just feel shit when you shout at someone. Well, anger's a powerful motivator and we'll, again, circle oh, okay. back, back, to, back to that. Um, you, um, you have an amazing variety of work uh, and, uh, and in your, when you hit your 30s, you suddenly, uh, you, don't, you don't stop acting. You've got uh, uh, Californication, you've just, uh, just, just been doing Robin Hood recently. You continue to write for stage and screen, you, you produce books. Um, I, uh, I feel as though I'm speaking to a man who perhaps doesn't understand comparative advantage. Uh, you, seem to, you seem to just throw yourself into absolutely everything. Why didn't you narrow as the opportunities broadened out? Why didn't you focus on, the, 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 on a, couple of, a couple of projects? I think, um, I think it's partly because all through my 20s, my mum and people, they would encourage me to specialise. But again, part of growing up in Perth is that you can't really afford to. And also, I just like it all. And so by the time I started getting attention, my, virtually my first thought was, oh, how can I leverage this so I can keep doing all the things I like? And once I kind of got a sniff that that was possible, um, I, I thought, well, that's the best possible outcome for a career, isn't it? To, have variety and I have I'm in a rare situation in that I've been incredibly lucky that the first commercial musical I co-wrote was a just massive thing and I own it um which means I have a piece of it's like I invented a tool that people need I I have a piece of intellectual property in the world which means I have more security and and the, It'd be mad to me to not leverage that into living a life with absurd amounts of variety. That excites me. People go, what's your favourite thing? I'm like, oh, my favourite thing right now is touring. But in a couple of weeks, I'll be like, ah, I wish I could go and write. And then when I'm locked in a room composing and tearing my hair out, I'm like, ah, I just want to act and say someone else's words so I don't have to <laughs> be responsible for it. And then when I'm acting, I think, oh, this is hollow. Let's, I need to go, you know, I want to go and write an essay. Um, and, and so I'm a bit um, fidgety probably but mostly it's conscious I'm like the ultimate career would I, if I have a goal it's to hit 75 or 80 and look back and go no one's ever had a career like that no one's ever done that stuff and I'm getting there you know there certainly in, as an Australian uh, there's no I'm in uncharted waters in terms of having a Broadway musical and being able to do mm, concerts mm. and and, and I've just written, co-written and starred in a drama. And oh, that's been one of the best experiences of my life. And now I'm thinking about um, adapting a novel into a TV show and I'm starting to go, okay, so when do I direct my first TV show? You know, so that's... I mean, I did direct an animated film for four years, so I've learnt some stuff. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your Annas Horribilis. Uh, oh, yeah. 20, 2017, you discover that Larrikins, uh, which was to star Hugh Jackman, Naomi Watts, basically every famous Australian yeah. actor ever, um, wasn't going to uh, hit the screens. Yeah. Um, Groundhog Day didn't do as, as well as you yeah. hoped. Um, how, did you, uh, how did that affect you and how did you bounce back? Um, 
Well, acknowledging, which I feel I always have to do, how absurdly privileged my life and problems are. Um, so I spent four years, uh, about 65, 70% of my time for four years, moved my family to LA to make this film. And it's an incredible thing, animation. It's the 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 talent of the artists I work with. I mean, Harry Cripps, who wrote the script, and, and all these beautiful designers and artists. And, and it's like building a... I, I say this on stage sometimes. It's like building a mansion out of matchsticks, but first you have to hew the matchsticks. I mean, every pixel is considered... And it's hard to describe what the job of, of co-directing an animated film is, but I, I was writing the songs, co-writing the script, Hans Zimmer was doing the score, I was in every meeting about every feather and piece of dirt, we were building the Australian outback in digital 3D. It was amazing. And, and then in the meantime, I had written Groundhog Day and that was a you know costing 12 million bucks to get to Broadway and won all these awards and stuff and I thought oh you know it was going to be big but I was having to work very hard and then yeah the film got shut down when corporate buyout basically and um and for lots of reasons Groundhog Day didn't stick on Broadway and I was just flat just depressed really and it, it was the loss of time that I couldn't get my head around the idea that someone could steal four years off me when I could have you know I eventually had a meeting with the executives who shut it down and they're like but Tim you got really well paid you know and I'm like I took a pay cut to do this I know you think that's why people do things but I I did it because I wanted to spend more time with my family and I wanted to make an Australian singing animal movie I wanted to break new ground Mm. I didn't come here for you money I don't it's not I could earn four times as much touring I could have written so much in that time that you've taken off me and I just I was having this pervasive thought that even as as I was having it I was thinking this must not be right this must just be this must be what depression feels like because it's so but the the thought was ah I'm done they, they kind of stole my... They spent four years taking my sparkle, feeding on my sparkle, whatever it is that I bring into rooms, which is just enthusiasm, really, and love of, you know, the guys who worked with me on Larrikins, just, just when I still, when I see them, they say that was the best, just the best experience because they felt respected, which you don't at these studios, and I stood between them and the powers that be, and I told them to bugger off and and told the artists they were geniuses. And I felt like they'd taken all that energy I bring into rooms and just, like, stolen it off me, like someone with a wand pulling the sliver of silver out of my mouth or whatever that reference is. And I felt like I was... I couldn't make anything like ever again. That mm. was the thought. Mm. I'm like, oh, I made the wrong choice. I went to Hollywood and I got what you get when you're too ambitious and go to Hollywood. You, I got... They broke me. That's what I felt like. And, and actually, Broadway was worse. Broadway was even more brutal. I mean, there's, there's stories. I, I've been made to sign a thing saying I won't talk about it by a producer who deliberately, as far as I can tell, under, 
sort of tried to deliberately destroy us, but then had enough kind of power to make us sign a thing saying we wouldn't talk about what he did. And I don't know when that runs out, but it's blackmail. But I'm not, I don't want to get my fellow producers in financial trouble by talking about it. But I almost am now. But it's like insane. If the producers hadn't been made, I'd suggest there's another, uh, another music Oh, it's, it's just awful. The ruthlessness hurt my heart. And I am a pretty strong kind of person in terms of getting what I want out of stuff. And, of, and I can be quite, um, okay, thank you. That's, it's just not the best idea. We're going to do it again. Or, you know, um, you know, I think being in a writer's room with me is, can be like quite full on because I'm just like, no, 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 it's not that. And, but I'm not, I'm not mean. And the, it's ridiculous. I feel like Candida, right? I feel like I got to 40 before I realised that people are assholes. <laughs> and it, it was like a slightly existential thing. I'm like, oh, yeah, people are awful. People don't care about... People are ruthless. And so that, that is privilege, to get to 40, having somewhere in your head that people are actually generally good. And then to have an experience that makes you think actually people are assholes, that that is privilege to have got that far. What got you back into being a, a creator again? Ah, uh, just some time. Just had to stop thinking about it. I thought about it all day, every day. Both those things, like rotating fury, mm. and the letters, the unsent angry letters, and just the self righteous fury really I can be pretty self-righteous when I feel like someone's been unfair and righteous on behalf of others when I feel like someone's been unfair you, you'd have to say Cardinal Pell would probably agree yeah Pell would agree and Matilda's about that I, I mean I don't know I'm second child that sort of righteousness is I don't think it's always attractive but it's it's better than not being righteous it's better than not caring I suppose um, and then I just when well, you've got to stop going around and around on this stuff like if you're not gonna fix it just you just got to move on and then we moved back to Australia and upright this TV project and this tour and I just got I've had the best working year of my life in Australia and when partly of course I feared of I'm going home for my kids and my family, but I'm obviously going to have to take a hit with the work because it's Australia, there's not as much going on, but I've had the best work year of my life. And that's all I want to be is busy and making stuff that doesn't get binned. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm really good now, really good. So Back to being the luckiest guy in the world, which I always was, obviously. So the philosopher Martha Nussbaum distinguishes two kinds of anger. There's the, the uh, revenge anger where you want to hurt somebody who's hurt you and there's righteous anger in which you're uh, upset about a particular cause and an injustice in the world and you seek to deal with it. And she says that revenge anger is a, is a dumb emotion and, and we should uh, get it out of our system. Yeah. Are you still able to take that f uh, approach after, after 2017? I agree entirely that revenge anger is useless but I I think it's um revenge anger is like a release valve of a you know on a steam engine you, you you'd be foolish to demand of yourself no you you'd you 
I think you'd be unrealistic to demand of yourself no revenge anger when someone does something to you. But you, you also, if you went to a counsellor or a psychologist, they would tell you that, that you have to find your way out of it. I still can get myself worked up about... I, I'm still angry, uh, crazy, stuff that it would be very hard to explain that just would sound so ridiculous. But I'm angry about Matilda on Broadway. Really angry. And I can't... It's hard. That would be a whole conversation. But the manipulation of, the, you know, all these awards and all this lying and people saying stuff about us to make sure we didn't win awards. And it's just mean. I, and I get angry about that as much as anything, still. Crazy. I was always astonished it didn't do as well in uh, America as it did in Britain. Well, because they, they don't want us to. That's why they, the Tony Awards are, uh, are made to, to take power off artists and put, a, put them in the hands of producers. So they, they make up a fake award ceremony and say, yay, the best musical is this. And Americans go, oh, they, they believe that in good faith. But it's bollocks. It's just a way, because the best musical Tony is worth $10 million, someone's calculated in tours and blah, blah. And so they're not going to give it to the Royal Shakespeare Company. You know, so it's, it's you know, listen to me talk. It's so ridiculous to talk about that. But so I, 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 I am, I need to work on being more zen. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm definitely better at it. Do you regret writing your song about uh, critic Phil Doust? Uh I wouldn't do it now, obviously, but I was still punching up then. Hmm. What, what is sad about it is that it stuck. And so poor Phil, you know, when you typed his name into Google for years and years afterwards, it, it, that's what came up. And, but then again, for years when you type my, because he wrote for The Guardian, you type my name in, his review would come up saying I'm, like, like personal reviews saying I'm talentless and so it's like, the song for Phil Doust was a song about my petulance. I mean, it is clearly at the end a song about how hopeless I am at taking criticism. <laughs> but I kind of got to have my cake and eat it too, which I do a lot. I, I get away with getting to have my cake and eat it too, being self-aware, but still getting my... to shove my knives in. It's not very attractive. It's quite funny, though. <laughs> You're um, one of the uh, strongest proponents of atheism out there uh, and, uh, and you're you know, passionate about, uh, about a, a humanist scientific worldview. Um, I wonder how that gels with, uh, with your sort of notion of what it is to live a good life. Uh, I think about Alain de Botton's notion of religion for atheists, the idea that philosophy uh, is often exploring kind of the outer reaches of, uh, of, of, of logic and theory, whereas really a good life is mostly about sort of sticking to a few basics, be faithful to your spouse, play with your kids even when they're less exciting than uh, being on the internet. Uh, do you think in... Uh, uh, critiquing religion, you're taking away uh, one of the sort of supports that helps to, to guide a lot of people in living a good life? Yeah, well, I, I, I don't... Um, there's only one thing I've ever done or said. Well, not that I've ever done or said, but in terms of the work I put out, the only thing that's just plain old mean is thank you God, which is a dismantling of the idea that prayer can heal you or do anything that prayer works and it that's just as and woody allen jesus is just sort of 
mocking the idea. Everything else is, my interest is where religion meets bigotry because religion meets bigotry everywhere. Religion is in the vast majority socially regressive all over the world. So I, and I have religious friends, of course, and they're beautiful, but you can't look at religion in Australia and the role it plays and say they're at the forefront en masse of progress, progress, progressivism. The, the, pe the same mob who were saying, I just, we just don't, we have no problem with gay people, we just don't think they should get married because marriage is about that and they can have a different thing, pretending that they're fine. They're the same mob who, up until 1995, were saying, no, we still think it should be criminal to have gay sex in Tasmania and it's always the church. It's always the church leading conservatism. So I don't have a problem with religion. I have a problem with how religion is used to justify retrogressive thinking. Am I wrong about my assessment of it, do you think? Well, here's, here's where I think you might be. Um, it's certainly true that... Um, uh, the churches were a strong force against uh, same-sex marriage reform, um, as, as with other sort of social reforms. But it's also true that um, churchgoers on average are more likely to volunteer, even putting aside their religious volunteering, more likely to donate money, even putting aside their religious philanthropy. They're more That's active... That's not true, in... is it? Statistically, I don't think religious yeah. people are more um, philanthropic. Yeah, so... Uh, not in America. I, this is drawing from uh, Robert Putnam's American Grace, right. uh, which which ends up concluding basically that uh, attending a religious service makes you nicer um, because most involvement in communities happens because people are asked. So and it makes you healthier and happier, statistically. Uh, in, indeed, indeed. And and that these Sunday assemblies, which have emerged as uh, atheists uh, look to replicate mm. something uh, church-like, uh, don't seem to have taken off. No. Uh, is, a, is a world of white wine in the sun and physics podcasts uh, enough to, to provide that sense of social glue that characterised the Australia we grew up in? Um. Yeah, because it is, because it's happening, because very few people go to church now. So so the question is really, are we broken? Are we more broken now than we were when we all went to church? Because it's not a hypothetical, it's happened. We don't go to church anymore, and we don't. We have sports clubs, and we have hobbies, and we have alcohol in the pub, but we don't go to church anymore, do we? 9% or something, is it? Or yeah, regular about, attendance. About a fifth month, uh, yeah. once a month. Yeah. Uh, it's so, certainly waned, but those people are important. In, in oh, their, of course, in their yes, no, yes, no, but as a, And as you're a undermining their kind of um, raison d'etre. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, as I say, my, my, so, so there's, so I don't, I don't want people to stop having religion. And I don't think you'd find a single quote ever of me saying, I think religion should go away. Um, I don't know if I think that. I think it probably would be better that there'd never been um, monotheism. I think if we had gone down the Greek route, you know, obviously they had problems, but it was a long time ago, but of, you know, philosophy and logic and, mm. and rhetoric being the main things. I think we need to get back there, learn rhetoric and f philosophy of logic and how to 
distinguish between a good and bad idea. And these are the things that the world needs now. In America, there's a massive correlation between religiosity and Donald Trump voting. It's, it's, and between religiosity and a desire for unlimited access to semi-automatic weapons. It's nuts. They might be getting good stuff out of their religion, but they're also basically being taught to be able to believe what clearly ain't so. So if you grow up your whole life being told Jesus was a magic person and you believe it and you take him into your heart, that's all fine. Is it possible that what you're doing to your neurology is coaching yourself to be able to live with cognitive dissonance in a super powered kind of way if you spend your whole life literally believing the bible then you are living with massive cognitive dissonance aren't you you're you can't possibly go through the world thinking you're thinking one thing about the world as it is i won't walk in front of that bus you know i'll drop this cup and it will fall and then you're thinking another about jesus and then when trump comes along and is clearly a awful person you can kind of do that thing you do that trick you do to kind of just see what you need to see. So, so there's two questions, and it's a huge conversation. There is, is religion right, as in is it correct about the nature of the universe? And is religion right, as in is it good? Is it morally right? Is it... And it, so, so I think it's settled that religion is wrong about the nature of the universe. I mean, obviously, we could have a conversation about whether God exists, but it seems... If you don't grow up being brainwashed, you basically know that there wasn't a magic Jewish preacher in first century Palestine. But the question of whether it is a substantial moral good or a substantial moral evil in the world, I don't know. It's got to be close, huh, to, to being as bad as it is good. Just talk about the Catholic Church in Australia, the massive amounts of good stuff they've done and the massive massive damage now it's quite easy to measure the schools and the hospitals the orphans and the outreach and the help for the weak and the meek it's hard to measure the cumulative effect of homosexuality is a sin you can measure it in many many deaths before you even get into abuse and just in teaching people lies, just standing up every Sunday and saying, Jesus thinks this, and I'd rather people learn truths, or as close as we possibly can get. Which doesn't answer your question about what we do to create community. But I don't... Sometimes I think, if I was being really basic about it, whether you're religious or not doesn't really make much difference to whether you're a good person or not. I haven't noticed it. So all things being equal, why don't we stop the fairy, fairy tales? Why don't, well, I mean, I would not be able to look at my kids in the eye when they said, you know, was Jesus the son of God and say anything but no. It's the same reason they say, you know, is the moon made of cheese? I just have to say no, because the answer is no. I can't, I can't sort of say, well, some people... I do. I say, some people believe that, and that's fine, and we have all those conversations. But if they say, but well, what's true? I say, well, it's, it's a faith that was made up by wandering Jewish shepherds. You never did Easter Bunny or Tooth Theory or Santa Claus? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. But um, 
But when my daughter said, does Santa Claus exist at the age of four, I was not able to say yes. When she asked me, I said, he exists in the story world and it's a wonderful world to spend your time in. And she went on believing in him. And when my son still believed in Easter Bunny last year when he was eight, I thought, I think this is getting mean. And I told him. And he broke down and said, nothing's real. Because it, it tumbled very quickly. It, it was Tooth Fairy that I told him isn't real. And because I thought it was time. Because soon, if he was 10, he'd be cross with us for not telling him. Because it's mean to tell a kid something like that. At some point, it's mean. You know. Do you believe in free will? No, you can't. But I do understand the Dennett versus Harris distinction. I do understand. They, but they all act as if what they're saying is, yes, there is and no, there's not. But they're all acknowledge there's not really. It's just how hard your determinism is, isn't it? Or am I misunderstanding the debate? So we're all chemicals, uh, meat robots, yeah. meat, meat, meat robots yeah. making uh, making the decisions that we're always going to make. Given well, no, because that's where people go wrong. And again, this is too long, and I want this conversation with you because it's hard to find people who have the basic background to have the conversation, and it's an ongoing conversation. But I, people get when you say. We live in a deterministic universe. They think that it means everything's predestined. But there might be a guy wandering down the street out there who is on his way to beat up his partner. And the fact he's on his way to beat up his partner is because he was born with the genes he was born with and every single piece of input in his entire life was the piece of input from the food his mother ate in utero to a gust of wind in year five coming through a window that made him look that way, not that way. Every tiny, tiny, tiny thing led him to being walking past our hotel room on a way to hit his partner. But he's not necessarily going to hit his partner because I could walk out there and he could go, oh, you're that guy from that thing. And I could come have a photo and then he wouldn't hit his partner necessarily or a bus might go past with a sign on it saying ring the domestic violence hotline and he might ring it so intervention is vital in a determinant mm. of course determinism doesn't mean it's definitely going to happen it means once it has happened it happened because of everything that happened before it so i talk about it and this is a little pet theory i'm trying to work on which is that in terms of how this affects our how to be empathic and understanding of people um i think um high expectations forward utter understanding backwards so until you hit a bunny with a crowbar it is worth going never hit a bunny with a crowbar you psycho whatever intervention is or hey why don't we put the crowbar down not why don't we go play with your something else? You intervene all the way up. But once the person's hit the bunny with the crowbar, it's like, oh, that's a person whose life led to the point where they hit a bunny with a crowbar and now we have to think about justice and retribution and punishment and rehabilitation in those terms. So understanding that free will is a, at best a difficult-to-defend notion increases empathy. doesn't make you give up. It does the opposite. Since I first understood this 
years after someone planted the idea in my head, it sat on the shelf. I feel like it's genuinely made me a more empathic person. So it's that link then between free will and the agape kind of love that the Greeks talk about, the, the universal, universal love. For That's right. Or the, what do the Buddhists call it? All, all loving something, something. Are you a long way from me in your thoughts about free will? Uh, no, pretty close. I, uh, I uh, visited the local jail yesterday and uh, as I was leaving, I was asking uh, one of the senior people there what they could, what, what we could do to help some of those there. And he said, don't give me more resources, put it into early intervention, put it into improving the foster care system, the early childhood system, the schools, mm. uh, making sure that we've got better mental health supports. Yeah. Um, and And he talked about... He said his very very best wardens are those who treat all of the detainees uh, with the notion of how how, how would I want this person to be treated if they were my son? Uh, My son who would, my my wayward son who had done some terrible things but who was still still my son. And he said, you don't don't always get those people as wardens, but when you have them, then then they're they're the ones who do the best. That's amazing because that's what I always want to say. I kind of use cousins. Because when you say brother or son, you go, well, they would never do that Mm. when it comes to... I always just go, what if it was your cousin? Your cousin who you lost touch with, but your cousin. Or mm. your or your uh, sister's husband, you know. People don't like that. People don't like being asked to be sympathetic towards people who have done horrible things. I mean, this comes to the George Pell thing, which you'll hear me talk about on stage. But any suggestion that I post-writing my song feels some sympathy for that man. I mean, I don't like that man, but I feel a removed, objective, philosophical sympathy for him because it's my life philosophy that any, any point at which your empathy runs out is a failure on your behalf. Now, some failures of empathy are utterly justified and fine, but it's still a failure. Let's extend the circle a little bit further. Are you vegetarian? No. I'm a philosophical, hypocritical vegetarian. I think I should be. My uh, last guest, Robert Wiblin, um, said this is uh, this is a bit like those who put themselves in the position of Thomas Jefferson, uh, who said that uh, owning slaves was uh, he knew owning slaves was intellectually wrong, but he did so anyway. Uh, that's your that's your vegetarianism. Yeah, yeah, it's the worst. Yeah, it's the worst. Uh, yeah, you know how I talk about having my cake and eat it, eating it too. I mean that—that's probably the grossest thing about me. Is I, I talk a good game and find it hard. Oh, look, I think you got to be careful with demanding of yourself everything. Living an ethical life is not possible. You just have to kill yourself. You have to take yourself out of the biosphere as a human. We just. There is no ethical version of it. But not eating meat would be very, very good. The trouble is my feelings about... Uh, it's too long a conversation. You've heard it all before. But, yeah, I mean, there's the sentience thing. But environmentally, it's crazy. But but me not eating meats, it, it has to be governmental. All, all environment... We, we're not going to fix global warming with individual acts. We're just not. We can't. It has to be t- 
top-down, global effort of laws, penalties, taxes. And we just got to. And, and it would be make me feel good to be doing my little bit first, but it's... It's not the thing that's going to fix it. I mean, I, you'll hear me sing a song about tonight. I've got a new song about how much I hate myself. So you'll get, you'll see that. Let me quickly skate over a bunch of topics by uh, giving you some either-ors, what I think of as my false dichotomy round. Fantastic. Uh, Lennon or McCartney? Uh, I have to say McCartney just because I've, I've met him. And, nah, can't. No, nah, I refuse to answer. Shakespeare or Wikipedia? If I may define that as what what would if I could only choose one to be in the world, mm. Wikipedia, I'm afraid. Biology or physics? Oh, which fascinates you more? I I, I think physics fascinates me because I can't understand it, so I enjoy biology better because at least I can get close. But I struggle with the macro macro and the micro micro. Books or podcasts? Books. Kurt Vonnegut or T.S. Eliot? <laughs> no, that's Lennon McCartney. <laughs> Non-overlapping <laughs> magisteria. <laughs> Los Angeles or London? London, London, London. A thousand times London. Stage or screen? Oh, I would have yelled stage a couple of years ago, but I'm getting really into the art form. So... No, the stage is still my most profound experiences of audience hood are in theatres. Also, the worst experiences. What is the worst? Oh, Mamma Mia. Any of that stuff. Any of that stuff that's kind of like, no, for me, that's just snobbery, but oh, unbearable. Dawkins or Hitchens? Uh, I think. Despite his reputation, I think Dawkins's body of work is a bigger contribution. I mean, Hitch is just a wonderful writer and polemicist and essayist. Dawkins introduced ideas that have had huge influence. Sydney or Melbourne? Well, Sydney. I've put my dime down on Sydney. I'm learning to love it. But Melbourne in my heart. <laughs> I love the ocean. Thomas Lehrer or Lin-Manuel Miranda? Oh, I think Lin-Manuel's more gifted than Tom and me put together. Yeah. It's the American hysteria. This sort of like... The way they talk about Hamilton, this musical, is hilarious. They, they have nothing to say about it. They're just like, I got a ticket. It was 1500 bucks. We saw it. How was it? It's great. You're like, oh, fuck. You just, all they want is to have had a ticket. And the soundtrack is one of the greatest, perhaps the greatest musical theatre soundtrack of all time. As a piece of theatre, I reckon Groundhog Day was better. Jazz or blues? Or where they intersect. Hmm. Which takes us back to your uncle? Oh yeah, no, he's he's fully blues. He's he's got no jazz in him. Okay. He's a proper ear player. He he wouldn't be able to name the chords. He's Hendrix level, just feeling his way. Yeah, he's a monster. And in terms of which is worse, uh, Trump or Brexit? 
I actually think Brexit will be, unless something magical happens and they go to another vote and we pull the fuck out, um, I mean, pull out of Brexit, stay in. I think Brexit's worse. I think we'll recover from Trump and we might, America might get better because of Trump because it's had to look at itself in the mirror. Although I think there'll be something approximating a civil war first. I mean, I don't know what is going to happen when he goes to jail. What are they going to do? Well, I've got a song, new song tonight that says all those gunned up red hats. I think they'll just stay on the couch watching Fox and Friends. I don't think they're really going to get out of the couch. Auto-tune or alternative medicine? Oh, I take auto-tune. Auto-tune's my friend. I thought you disliked it. My character in Californication doesn't like it. Uh, oh, yeah, no, I don't like bad auto-tune. Yeah. The idea of auto-tune is people don't know you've done it. Right. And if you, you don't mind that. No. No, I tune everything these days very gently, and I don't... Tuning's not my problem. My voice is a horrible instrument, but tuning's not the problem. <laughs> so let me wrap with a couple of uh, final questions. What advice would you give to your teenage self? I don't know really. I don't really have any advice for him because I kind of just got on with it. I mean, I would say it's going to be cool, but that's pointless. That would might have that's that intervention of in a deterministic universe. If I had gone and said it'll be cool, it probably wouldn't have been. That's why you don't time travel. Um, the fact that I felt absolutely not good enough to be a musician or an artist is why I got to be because I just worked because I thought well I'm not naturally gifted so I better just try harder what's something you used to believe but no longer do I guess at some point I kind of believed in some vague mystical notion of the universe and purpose I used to believe in free will um and when a friend of mine in New York, so it must have been 2010-ish, said there's no such thing as free will, I just went, well, this is such a stupid thing to say. Like, what does that even mean? And then, of course, the gateway was Harris's little book and then down the rabbit hole. Um, so, yeah, free will. When are you happiest? Oh, probably on my parents' farm. But only because it's rare. I mean, that's the definition of happiness, is stuff that you get that you don't always get. And if you get it all the time, it no longer makes you happy. Because it's a relative concept, yeah? Henry IV, part one. Uh, if all the world were sporting holidays to, to, well, holidays to sport would be as tedious as to work, but when they yeah. seldom come, they wished for come. Yeah. Uh, What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Oh, I exercise and sleep. You've moved from running to uh, gym work recently. Yeah, right? yeah. What prompted that? Well, soreness, but also uh, it works better for me because especially this TV show I just filmed um, required me to be naked and have sex and, you know, like... not. And I just, and it just, it's better for my body. 
I do like circuits, basically. It's better for my body. It makes me lose weight more quickly because my, uh, it's more shocked by it. Running, my body's like, oh, this whole thing. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, vanity. But I also get mental health kick out of it. I used to think, oh, gym doesn't work like running does because running's free, but I, I still get the endorphins. And, and I do this class with all these people just around the corner from my house and I know them all and it's quite fun. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Um, it's just wine. <laughs> I don't know how guilty I feel. I'm quite functional, sort of mild, dependent. Um, but I don't... I mean, I, the one thing about loving my work as much as I do is there's nothing else. There's my family and hanging out with my kids and doing what they want to do, playing basketball or going for a ride or going to the beach and snorkeling and stuff, which I love, but it's theirs. But I don't do any... There's no hobbies for me. No, it's just... I'm, I'm just want to work. And finally, Tim, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Well, I think probably it's just my parents because they, they didn't... There's no preaching. There was no sort of didactic explanations of how to live in our family, but... My dad and mum are solid, good people, I reckon. And, uh, and I think my siblings and I are generally nice and very interested in trying to do the right thing, so it must have just come from there, right? But I don't know if there's a text or a philosopher. Hmm. Pretty inspired by my siblings too. I think they're pretty... My, brother, my big brother's a kind guy. Yeah, and we talk a lot about the how are we to live question. I guess Singer was influential too. Yes. So how has your view on parenting evolved? Uh, you have two beautiful children, Violet and Casper, and uh, you must have been around a lot of kids in producing Matilda. Um, what is it to you to be a, a good dad? Um, I think I'm probably not a very good dad because I'm not there enough I mean I have I have some guilt about how much I'm around but we also my wife and I have a very old school division of labour she's full time parent slash person who runs our rather complicated lives and I'm a full time times two sort of worker but I uh, I'm not sure how much Matilda changed me and I, I wasn't really around that production I wrote it and let them all get on with it um certainly I have done a lot of work with youth theatre and stuff I've always got along really well with kids like I I know I I have a big family and have always been surrounded by kids so I I don't I don't find connecting with young people difficult at all although I start to feel a bit old nowadays but um like I think I think they think I'm just an old person now um, but my kids, I'm, I'm a bit unsure about this. I, I think we might be screwing our kids up by being too close to them. But I don't know. I don't think it's necessarily the case that it's good to feel... I get so upset when my daughter's upset. And I feel like that's good to show her that I care. But I don't know. I think... I think... Maybe our parents had it 
closer to right where you just sort of keep a bit of distance and let them muddle through because kids are just getting so anxious and stuff. I wonder if it's partly because we indulge them by asking them to talk it through. Should just go, no, no, bye, no crying. <laughs> so you and Sarah are helicopter parents who want to be free-range parents. I think we are not particularly helicoptery. I think we're quite strict for parents these days. Um, but my daughter and I especially, it's just, she's so good at ideas. She's always been out of, she wants to hear my analysis and I don't know if I'm screwing her up. Not sure. I really like them. We get along well. And I'm very, very lucky because not many people in my industry get have a marriage as healthy as mine. And it's because she's a rock star. She's just solid as. Well, Tim mentioned actor, writer, director, polymath. Pontificator. Pontificator. Thank you for th taking the time to speak in the Good Life podcast today. It's a pleasure. Hope you like the backing track. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.